0: Uh, I'm uh, a philosopher uh, by academic training, and I now uh, work uh, part-time with a Christian charity called the Demaris Trust, we're based in Southampton, uh, quite a lot of what I do with that uh, is uh, school conferences with A-level students uh, under the Philosophy and Ethics uh, banner, and also writing for various publishers and so on, I should do a uh, shameless plug for my most recent book, which if you're interested in the New Atheist Movement as a response to the arguments of the New Atheist Movement called A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, uh, published with Paternoster Press. I also work part-time uh, with the University College of Journalism out in Norway and I'm actually flying off tomorrow, I'm going uh, from here up to Heathrow and flying off to Norway tomorrow to spend the rest of the week uh, out with students uh, in this uh, University College in Norway. Uh, so my life involves a lot of Traveling around, but uh, I'm not traveling around, sitting in front of a, a laptop and uh, typing away, and so on. So I'm delighted to uh, be asked to come and uh, say a little something about apologetics uh, to kind of kick us off with. But then we're going to turn over the bulk uh, of the time together this evening uh, to actual uh, discussion of apologetical issues for you to ask questions uh, and me to try and uh, give advice on answering them or uh, to answer them, and so on. And answering questions uh, about Christian faith is a pretty uh, good rule of thumb definition of what we mean by talking about apologetics. It's a very unfortunate word in our English language because it immediately carries connotations of apologizing, uh, saying sorry uh, for something, and so the idea of uh, saying sorry about being a Christian is uh, a bad misrepresentation of what the, the word means. It's, uh, it comes from a, a Greek term that's used in the New Testament, the Christy, and it means giving uh, reasoned uh, answers for things. So, uh, giving uh, reasonable, rational uh, reasons why uh, Christianity uh, is the way to go. Um, philosophy. Uh, is a lovely subject because it's very broad and you can do the philosophy of pretty much anything that you are interested in. So if you're a philosopher and you happen to be interested in art, well then you can do uh, aesthetics and the philosophy of art and so on. Um, There's even an entire uh, sub-discipline of philosophy which is the philosophy of apologetics, uh, called meta-apologetics. It's the subject that I've been getting into uh, recently, uh, looking at At giving a a more sort of rounded, if you like, definition and understanding of what apologetics uh, involves than the one that you often get, which concentrates purely on the the, the sort of giving of rational answers and looking at logical arguments and evidences about the New Testament and so on. Let me start off by saying that personally, my view is that Christian spirituality is true that it is good and that it is beautiful as a form of life, or at least the correct form of Christianity is all of those things. Um, talking about the New Atheists, or those of you who know their work or have seen any of their TV programmes, read any of their books, will know that basically they have the complete opposite view many do. They think that uh, Christian spirituality, in particular, and forms of religion in general, are false. They think um, that actually Christian spirituality is, is evil, and consequently, and hardly surprisingly, they think that it's ugly. And so they are against it. And if you um, thought that those things apply to Christian spirituality, then you, know, you should be against it too. It was uh, an article in Wired magazine that sort of uh, dubbed this movement The New Atheism, uh, an article by contributing um, editor Gary Wolf, and the name kind of stuck, and his article gave a very good, I think, succinct um, insight into the, the core of what makes the New Atheism uh, new, as it were. So the New Atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion's not any wrong, it's evil. It's not that they just think that people who believe in God and so on have made an intellectual mistake. It's that they think that they're engaging in a form of life which is actually evil. Primarily, when you track it down, because of the New Atheist understanding of what it means to have faith. And it's it's a, from my viewpoint, a misunderstanding of at least what the Bible means by having faith. So uh, physicist Victor Stenger, one of the new atheists, says faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence or even in the light of contrary evidence. And A.C. Grayling, a British philosopher who is in the new atheist, says faith is a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason. That's what they are understanding the meaning of faith to be seems to me that they just haven't taken cognizance of biblical verses like this verse, which I'm going to hang a lot of what I say around. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, uh, where all Christians are commanded always be prepared to give an answer, and it's the word translated in English as answer, which in the Greek is apologia, from which we get the word apologetic, meaning a reasoned defence, it was a, a term from the law court. So always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason reason for the hope that you have as Christians, but do this with gentleness and respect. If I was to um, give uh, an analysis of what uh, I think the New Testament means by faith, you could say that it already has these two constituent parts. It's a case of an intellectual belief that married to a belief in. Phosphor's distinguished between a belief that something is the case and having a belief in something, a trust in something or someone. And when you have the two together, then you have an instance of faith. So if you have an intellectual belief, you believe that it's true that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and you marry that with a commitment to Jesus, an act of trust in him and his promises. Well, then you have an instance of faith in Jesus. But there's nothing about this understanding of faith which means that that faith must be exercised in the absence of good reasons for believing that Jesus is Lord. Certainly nothing about this that means you have to exercise that faith against the evidence so here's the uh, definition of apologetics that I've been sort of working on and uh, teasing out um, in recent uh, months. Uh, I'll do this and will unpack it briefly and then we'll turn over time for questions. So I think apologetics is this. It's the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality. And uh, this is all about our being ambassadors for Christ, as it says in the New Testament advocating Christian across spiritualities to people who don't share that spirituality they have their, a different spirituality. We're advocating it as objectively true and good and beautiful and we're doing that as we'll see through the responsible use of rhetoric, of rhetoric. and I would justify all of that from uh, various uh, different uh, New Testament uh, passages we need to, of course, look a little bit at the understanding of what we mean by spirituality. It's one of those sort of fuzzy words that gets bandied around without much definition. Uh, very briefly mention about true, the good and the beautiful, the pre-classical values, and a little something about rhetoric, which again is a much maligned and misunderstood term in our culture. And I'm going to hang that out of looking at 1 Peter 3.15. So here we have 1 Peter 3.15 again. I just want you to personal notice that it's about doing something. It's a command to Christians to do something. Always be ready to give, to give the reason. Do this with gentleness and respect. So it's talking about an action that we're called to, and that action flows out of various attitudes of the heart that Peter talks about. Reason for the hope that you have. Do it with an attitude of gentleness and the word there applies to the person that you're engaging in dialogue with, and an attitude of of respect, and the word there applies to our relationship with God. Uh, Out of our respect for God, we are being gentle towards the person that we are giving the reasons for our attitude to. And finally, those will flow out of various beliefs that we have as Christians. Uh, We have to be prepared, we have to have thought about this beforehand, uh, answers, the apologia, all about reasons and so on, the reason for the hope that you have. So you end up with these three parts, beliefs coupled with uh, attitudes, leading to us behaving in a certain way. And independently, I had been working on definition of spirituality, um, out of Jesus's uh, reply uh, to the question about the greatest commandment, interestingly enough. Uh, and I reckon that this is a general definition of spirituality. Any spirituality is a set of beliefs about reality, coupled with attitudes about what about that reality that leads to people behaving in a certain way, kind of organically. And different spiritualities will cash out uh, those areas in different ways, make mutually exclusive claims about what we should believe, how we should, uh, sh- what our ashes should be, what we should do, and so on. But That's a general schema into which any spirituality, you know, Christian spirituality, Buddhist spirituality, new atheist spirituality, will fit. And you can um, diagram it like this as well, because these things become a sort of self-reinforcing belief. Because you believe certain things, you have certain attitudes, and so you act in a certain way, and those actions lead you to feeling a certain way about things, and that reinforces your beliefs and so on as I say, I came at that uh, definition of spirituality by looking at Jesus' reply to the the question what's the greatest commandment? Where he says that you've got to love God with all of your heart that is the attitudes that you have with all of your mind including your worldview beliefs and so on, and with all of your strength, i.e. what you do, your actions. So Christian spirituality says the truth of spirituality is loving God with all of your beliefs, attitudes, and works. The beliefs and the attitudes other constitute faith, as we were looking at earlier, and this is works, so you can, like James, talk about faith and works. And because of your relationship with God, you love your neighbour as yourself. Hence apologetics, hence the reason why Peter says do this with gentleness towards the person and respect because of your relationship with God very brief mention about truth, goodness, and beauty, just this quote from British philosopher John Cottingham, from a recent newspaper article of his. Uh, it's just interesting to see him noting that, to everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism about truth and its value is correct. But That is, truth, beauty, goodness, carry with them the sense of a requirement, or a demand, upon us. The true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. Uh, think of um, the verse in Philippians, where it talks like if anything is, is true, anything noble, anything worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. Rhetoric. We often use it in a, in a, to mean a, a bad thing, you know, political rhetoric, or. Um, you're just uh, using rhetoric to try and convince people, not the way the ancients would have saw it. Uh, Aristotle, a uh, famous writer on rhetoric, and, uh, says that he uh, defines rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. So it's an objective search and discovery of what is persuasive about something. But that persuasiveness comes in various uh, kind of routes to people as it were. And rhetoric encompasses the principles of how best to communicate these observations with an audience. So uh, Aristotle famously talks about um, ethos, pathos and logos. That is, um, the first kind of ethos depends on the personal character of the speaker as I'm talking to you, you're making perhaps subconscious judgments about my character, my trustworthiness, my reliability, my confidence in what I'm saying, and so on. And you will also, if you uh, know me personally, make judgments about whether I'm hypocritical uh, and so on, that will affect your receptivity to what I'm telling you. The second pathos of putting an audience into a certain frame of mind is engaging their Emotions, but not just their emotions, engaging people's attitudes towards things. If you can show them something that is beautiful, since the beautiful is that which uh, does, uh, should, ought to you know, attract, is worthy of being admired, then you will attract people towards that which is beautiful. And the third logos on the proof. You notice logos, the word that's used by John in the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the logos be translated as word, um, because we don't really have a word that adequately translates it into English. But Paul, in Colossians, very interestingly, giving advice about sharing the gospel with people, talks about the same three elements of good communication that Aristotle does, and he mentions them in the very same order that Aristotle does, although he doesn't use uh, perhaps the same phraseology. He says, when you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Have a good ethos. Character. Hold their interest when you speak their message. Engage their hearts, their attitudes, their emotions. Pathos. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. About logos. Give answers. the reminiscent again of 1 Peter 3, 15. So I, I first analyzed this in terms of beliefs, attitudes, and actions, which constitute spirituality. You can equally analyze it in terms of Logos, pathos, and Ethos. And the real kind of uh, chiming bell moment came for me when i have been studying these things separately, looking into what the Bible had to say on these matters, looking into what the ancient Greeks would say about rhetoric and, and values and so on. And I suddenly noticed, hang on, these things are lining up, there are these three sets of three, and I came out with this idea that I think, uh, I've been writing a paper looking at Paul's time in, in Athens, uh, showing that he was using this kind of approach with people. I, I think this is a sort of more rounded more you know, biblical understanding of apologetics than the, the, the sort of narrow concentration on just the rationality issue that we sometimes uh, can uh, get Having unpacked these things, you'll, you'll see the background now of understanding apologetics, with the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spirituality as being objectively true and good and beautiful through the responsible use of all the elements of rhetoric. And what I noticed that they all wind up that your beliefs should of course be judged by their truth and communicated through good reasons. Your attitudes you are judged by uh, beauty. Uh, if you're looking to um, virtue theory, uh, there are some of the philosophy here might know of, um, communicated through um, the area of rhetoric called pathos. And our actions, people's actions, you judge them by their goodness, or lack of goodness. And that's communicated through people's character that you notice, the ethos that Aristotle talks about. But it's also there in the New Testament, in both Paul and in Peter, various other places, and you know, what Jesus said about the Greatest Commandment. And all of these things, I think, feed into uh, a good understanding of what we're called to when Peter's talking about their apologetics in 1 Peter 3.15. A quotation just to finish off with, from the 20th Century Evangelist Apologist Francis Schaeffer, uh, well worth tapping down some of his um, books Um, you can get a a book called Trilogy which is three of his books in one published by IVP which are his uh, works on apologetics he says if Christianity is true it ought to touch on the whole of life Christianity must never be reduced merely to an intellectual system it is an intellectual system, it's a robust intellectual world view but that's not all it is it can't be reduced to that after all if God is there it isn't just an answer to an intellectual question, although it is that we're called upon to adore him the attitude to be in a relationship with him, of trust based on what we believe to be true and incidentally to obey him our actions as well so it's a whole spirituality that's been offered here and it is not being offered without any kind of grounds for believing it and it's certainly not being offered um, on the principle that this is something that you should embrace against your best reason and evidence. So that's what I wanted to say about the actual topic of apologetics, and to kind of unpack some of that biblical background, uh, turn and saying what it is, what it means, uh, the misunderstandings that are often sort of flying around about some of the terminology. And I think that principal misunderstanding about what Christian faith is, these new atheist writers are putting forward uh, a completely unbiblical definition of what it is to have faith. Um, And it's that misunderstanding of faith that concerns them as being at the heart of the evils of religion. because they basically say to be religious is to have faith. To have faith is by definition to be irrational. If you're irrational, it's hardly surprising that you end up um, easy prey for people who want you to do terrible things to other people um, and hence we get uh, terrorism and so on and that's why we've got to stand against religion. That's basically the kind of drift of Atheism, and it all goes wrong at stage one with misunderstanding what a Biblical faith is actually claiming to be. So, I'll just stop between there and we'll turn over uh, to questions. Uh, both about uh, anything about what I said there about apologetics, but also any of those kind of questions that you or people you know, people you've read, uh, tend to ask or put objections to uh, embracing a kind of Thank you. Mm. Yes, I, I think that that's true. But I do think what they the New Atheists tend to do in a number of areas, including this one, is to what a scientist would call data pick. Pick on the, 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 the examples that suit them in their case the most, rather than taking a fair representative sample. It would certainly be true to say that there are Christians who have had a... Uh, 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 what I would call a misunderstanding of the definition of faith. There are Christians who would uh, say things like, you know, don't don't ask questions, just believe. But I don't think that that's the majority. It's in my experience it's certainly not the majority when you look at uh, theologians' understanding of, of, of faith, uh, Christian philosophers' understanding of faith, the New Testament or Biblical understanding of faith um, and so if you're going to base your whole criticism on that understanding of faith then fine I would criticise that understanding of faith but then so does the New Testament I think um, what you're not then doing is actually uh, targeting biblical Christianity um, uh, in its uh, strongest form and it's just the, the principle of charity in any debate to try and uh, wrestle with your opposition in its strongest form rather than in its weakest form, that's just setting up uh, a straw man in a uh, big bad, bad wolf and kind of come along and easily blow away with one half and a puff I will give a, a personal opinion on this in a moment, to so you know what I think, um, but I prefer to handle that kind of question because it's a, it's a question about something that lots of Christians disagree about. People who are Christians who are following Christ, who are trying to do their, their best to be reasonable and Bible-believing and all of that, clearly do, can and do disagree about the answer to that question. Um, that in itself is an interesting thing to note I think and it's crucial to know that it, the answer that you give to that question is not part of the, the central core of what it means to be a Christian um, you don't even have to have an answer to that question in order to exercise saving faith in Christ although uh, belief that's what I was talking about that's a sort of secondary tertiary um, issue um, having made that point I would then want to note that there are uh, a couple of crucial questions that I would advise anyone thinking about the issue to think through for themselves, so a sort of getting the right approach, the, asking the right questions in the right order about the issue is very helpful, I think. And the first question I would ask is, is the doctrine of creation free? And I would distinguish the doctrine from creation from different models or pictures of how God went about doing the creation that different Christians have. Because all Christians believe in the doctrine of creation, and we all believe that there is a God who created everything except himself for a purpose. Now, if that doctrine is true, then it could be true that Jesus is God incarnate and that he died for our sins and that he rose again and promised us salvation if we trust in him and will create the new heavens and the new earth someday. You know? um, so it, 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 there's a very real sense in which you can legitimately sidestep the issue and you might be encouraged to do that by just thinking about how darn complicated the issue is. Because to have a a real certainty about your answer to it, it's such an interdisciplinary area. Because you're talking about um, theological issues, issues of hermeneutics, uh, issues of science, issues of the philosophy of science. Um, You know, you'd have to be a philosopher, a a scientist, a theologian, an expert in ancient Hebrew languages, and culture, and hermeneutics, and literary studies, and a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, um, who has the time, basically? Um, so I would hold um, relatively lightly to any opinion uh, on it, um, although it is a fascinating area and an area that I'm uh, involved in, in in some cases. So, doctrine, that's the first question. If you do want to get into the area, um, and it, 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 it's crucial to see it's not an area about questioning whether you question biblical inerrancy or not. It's really about, A, the interpretation of what the text on its own grounds is saying, And how does that marry or fail to marry up with the scientific data? Um, And um, as a fairly noted American Christian philosopher called Alvin Plantinga has noted, he says, are these Christians informing their view about things in the world ought to try and take account of everything that they think they know. And some of the things they think they know comes from Scripture, and some of the things they think they know comes from science. And if there's an apparent contradiction between those two things, well, it might be because we've misunderstood the scriptures. But it might be because we've misunderstood the science. You can't automatically say that any time there's an apparent conflict, well, it must be the, the, the scientific answer that's going to win. Because it's just to, to prejudge uh, the um, uh, kind of epistemic uh, strength or the status of those two sources of knowledge. You have to kind of try and balance them out against each other. And it might be that um, you end up saying... Well, you know, on its own ground, I think the text says this, but the scientific evidence, I think, really is against it, but maybe I could reinterpret the science, or maybe I can reinterpret the, 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 uh, the, what the Bible is actually saying, uh, as people did about uh, you know the, whether the Earth goes round the sun or not. I mean, none of, none of us are now too worried about the fact that we will believe that the, the Earth goes round the sun, not vice versa, even though the scripture says, you "No, know, the Earth cannot be moved. Uh, and the sun rises, you know, travels across the sky does, and does this and you know, on the worldview that they thought had at the time and so on, maybe it's one of those areas. Um, so you end up doing this sort of uh, tricky balancing act between all of the sources of evidence that you think you have to come up with the most reasonable view. Um, but I think, don't think you should prejudge it by saying, well it must be the scriptural view that's going to win, or it must be the scientific view that's going to win. Um, because they're both sources of knowledge, which we have to try and take into account in forming our broader um, and picture of reality. You know, I did promise that I'd say something personal, and that is my own personal view. And you can um, you know Google me and find various articles that I've written on this. Um, I I used to be what's called a theistic evolutionist. That's someone who believes that it's the theory of evolution and all the universe and all that is true, and that it doesn't conflict with the Bible. It used to be my position. I then uh, changed my position to counter myself amongst the intelligent design theory camp you may have heard about, but not because my interpretation of scripture changed. But because my, um, first of all my interpretation of the philosophy of science changed, and then that led me reinterpreting some of the scientific research, Um to think that maybe evolution was a sufficient account of explaining what we've seen in nature. Uh, but my, uh, interpretation of scriptures didn't change from that time. Um, so I think that's yeah, quite interesting. Quite a lot of people have the idea that any opposition to uh, a belief in neo-Darwinism must be based upon people's prior religious beliefs. Um, but it certainly wasn't the case with me, and certainly not the case with lots of other um, scholars that I could point to who came from the position of actually believing um, a certain interpretation of scripture, and that not really changing and yet their view of the science shifting because of their reevaluation of that, not not because of any kind of religious um, motivation with the idea that there seems to be a, a conflict here and I think on balance that the biblical evidence outweighs the scientific sources of knowledge. Um, but it is a very complicated area and it's not crucial to even have an opinion about it. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, personally I would try and get help them get past the idea that you have to be a six day creationist order to be a Christian. Um, and that that proposition seems to be eminently um, empirically defeatable just by introducing them to a Christian who's not a young Earth creationist. You know, and if they don't, then take the hint from the fact that oh, you can be a Christian without being a young Earth creationist. Um, you know, if if that is the case, as I believe it to be, there is no essential problem there. Really, um, I try and focus on one: is the doctrine of creation true, and if it is, who do you think Jesus is? And if you answer those two questions suppose we're in a much better place actually to answer the question about how things came about in, in past history. One thing it would get rid of any um, assumption on your part that nature must be able to do all of its own creating. If you start with a if you start with a naturalistic worldview, or even if you start with a, a sort of methodological rule that says you know scientific explanations must only appeal to natural things causing other natural things then you kind of pre the answer that you're going to end up with. You're going to end up with some kind of naturalistic story. You know? um, but the risk of that, of course, is that if the naturalistic story, if naturalism, as a metaphysical view, is not true, then you risk um, believing what happens to be the most plausible story compatible with a naturalistic worldview that there is going Um, But that might not be the true story. You've you've stopped science then being a search for the true explanation of what actually happened, and you've diverted it into uh, what's the most plausible, naturalistically compatible story that I can tell. Um, If you're a Christian, if you believe in the doctrine of creation, you won't prejudge necessarily one way or the other. You'll say, maybe God could have done it by creating a world that would evolve itself, as some Christians believe. Maybe he didn't. How am I gonna tell? I'm gonna to have to go and look and see what the best evidence from everything that I think I know, including scripture, but also including the natural world, tells me, for the best of my understanding of it all. Whilst realising all that understanding is fallible, so... You know, <laughs> I think you're in a much more place to, to a sort of mount an honest inquiry into the subject without pre, prejudging it, if you focus on the, the doctrine. Mm. I would be very happy to say there are there is a development of understanding about God and His relationship with people between the Old Testament through the Old Testament. Uh, into the New Testament. That's you know, certainly true, you know. Um, Jews did not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? So there's a pretty big shift in in the understanding of God that's given in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, but it's, it, it, it's one thing to call that oh that's a contradiction because you know here he's not a trinity and by the time we get to the end of the new testament the signs are pretty clear that they're thinking of him in trinitarian terms but actually what a christian w- would say is well that's the nature of progressive revelation um, actually there are some hints within the old testament of god's trinitarian nature and actually when you really look at it the definitions of god's uh, oneness given in the old testament leave open the door to a Trinitarianism rather than a Unitarianism about monotheism. Um, so the, But there is a development, you know. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge as a you know, Christian, I don't think you can be a Christian, without acknowledging that there's a development from Old Testament views of things, including Trinity, including its view of Satan, including its view of life after death, through that, uh, that story. Um, so I think that's an important kind of notion to get across. The idea that God is um, starting where these people were in the ancient Near East to move them to a, a closer and closer understanding uh, of his nature and his relationship with us. And of course there are the changes involved in the, the different covenants. A you know, covenant, a political covenant with a particular nation, a grace covenant with all humanity that's a, a transnational And so on. So there are various developments that it's actually crucial to the gospel story to be able to to, to hold on to and and understand. Does that get to the the nub, or is there a particular kind of issue about God in the Old Testament and God in the New? Hmm. Yeah. One thing, one thing. I, I, I've got a talk on this I'm going, to, I'm going to do in the near future, actually, and I've, I've got a podcast channel on iTunes that you can track down. So I'll basically be podcasting a, a talk, I think, sort of in a week or two on this actual topic. And one thing that I'm doing and starting off there is, you know, saying people will say the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. Let's look at some verses from the Old Testament and some verses from the New Testament. But I don't give the, the verse, you know, references with the two columns for verses. And I've picked verses from the Old Testament that are all about God being loving and wanting to forgive people and being redemptive verses from the New Testament that are all about judgment and going to hell and you know, being condemned and you know, so on. And of course when you first put these two columns of quotes up, some people will immediately assume that the sort of the, the nice verses are from the New Testament and the, the nasty verses must be from the Old Testament. And then you show them, no, actually, it's the other way round, because of the verses I've picked. Which I think gives an indication that maybe the view, that you know, it's you know nasty Old Testament God, nice New Testament God, maybe that view itself is based on a little bit of data picking, like we were talking about earlier. Of course, you can troll through the Old Testament and find verses about judgment and condemnation and God being angry and so on. But you can do the same with the New Testament, and you can equally, you can find lots of verses in the Old Testament about God's loving steadfastness and his forgiveness and long-suffering with the nation of Israel, even though you know, he's treating God like a wife going off having affairs with other people and so on. And So I think you know, people can perhaps be given a skewed view, particularly by, hey, let's mention them again, the New Atheists, by their data-picking. Uh, rather than by getting a sort of a good view of that biblical story and an uh, overview of the uh, story. Mm. i try two avenues of approach. Um, one a bit more, let's say, one a bit more populist for want of another name and one a bit more specialized. At a kind of populist level, um, I think people know that some things are good and some things are wrong. And, and they certainly don't have to believe in God in order to know that, although I think God is the explanation of why that is the case. Um, so, you know, traditionally, um, philosophers wanting to bring out people's intuitions about there really is good and evil, sort of pointed to paradigm cases and said, like, you know, can you really honestly look at, you know, this film of the Holocaust and come away and tell me that, you know, oh, well, it was right for them, you know, I don't like it, but, you know, the, the commandant of Belson, he thought it was a good thing, and hey, you know, different strokes were different fakes. You know, can you, are you really willing to pay that pri- that price tag? Doing it, I think the 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 new atheist emphasis on criticizing religion for its evils kind of can score a wonderful home goal because all you need to do to people is say, oh, so expressing this moral relativist view, there's no real objective good and evil, and so on. You're agreeing with Richard Dawkins when he says there's no good, no evil. Um, So you don't think that um, Catholic priests who are um, committing acts of paedophilia uh, with choir boys are doing anything that's objectively wrong? you don't think that the Crusades, the, the Crusaders, did anything that was actually wrong is just, you know, relatively uh, they would live by a different set of rules that you decided not to adopt here but, you know, they, that's fine for them and so on. Um, and actually so many people these days are being um, sort of g up to be outraged at some of the terrible things religious people do but I, I think those are the cases to actually focus on in trying to get people to really willing to say that you know this wasn't wrong that Christians have done because Christians have done some things that are wrong. But I think only a belief in objective values, which ultimately goes within a theistic worldview, can actually give you a worldview that can sustain the idea that some things are objectively speaking wrong, and that Christians actually do do things which are. Wrong, because we are sinners, and we do need forgiveness, because we're objectively in the wrong, and so on. So it leads you very nicely into the gospel presentation uh, as well. And at a slightly more uh, kind of sophisticated uh, level, as it were, I would argue that there is a link between morality and rationality. People often kind of keep these in, in different compartments. Uh, and we were talking earlier about truth, goodness and beauty but well, I think, you know, rationality and goodness are actually linked because when someone engages you in an argument I've got an objection to Christianity okay, here's my objection to being a Christian what they're saying is if if you come to see that, and believe that this uh, argument that I'm giving you is logically valid that if, that if the premises are true it leads to the conclusion that you shouldn't be a Christian or that Christianity is wrong and you agree with me that these, these premises that it's based on are true, then you join the ought to change your mind. You'd be unreasonable not to stop being a Christian. You'd be failing to live up to your intellectual obligations to be, to be reasonable, uh, to even not uh, pay attention to my argument. That would be an unreasonable thing to do, and so on. But they're, time and time again, in you know, they're drawing upon moral concepts. They're saying you ought to be reasonable. You have certain intellectual obligations which you ought to strive to fulfill, and so on. But on a worldview that explicitly says there's no such thing as good and evil, and they're saying oh, oh, all oughts some relative, you know, why should they, on their view, expect you to even pay attention to their argument? Or expect you to change your mind if you become see that their argument you think is true? Uh, it was Frederick Nietzsche who said, why should you pay attention to truth? Why should you, if there's no such thing as a real should in reality? So I think that not only is the rejection of objective moral values too high a price to pay when you just look at some of the things that people, whether religious or not, do to each other. Say supposed to some different folks, but it's also self-contradictory at a rationality level. Mm. again i try and break down a couple of sort of avenues um one thing a, a line of research if you're really kind of bugged by that issue or know people who are really bugged by it and prepared to do some reading on it is to go online and track down a couple of articles by a christian philosopher called paul copan paul C-A-P-A-N. he's got two articles on the website of the evangelical philosophical society the eps which look at exactly that issue and go into it in a lot more uh, good detail um, than I obviously can here. So let me preface it with, with that kind of resource to go to. I think he's written some of the best stuff on this that there is. Uh, secondly, I draw attention to the fact that, um, for example, we know from archaeological finds of, um, sort of stele and, and Egyptian inscriptions and things, but it was common practice in the ancient Near East to use hyperbole, to exaggerate in uh, formal uh, descriptions of your nation's warring uh, efforts. Um, so uh, we find sort of Egyptian kings saying things like, you know, my army completely slaughtered um, the nation of such and such and, and you know, not, not one of them remained upon the land. Um, they were you know, completely wiped from the face of the earth by my troops, and then the survivors uh, of that nation gave me uh, the, this treat, this uh, booty, and, uh, and it, 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 what survivors? You said there weren't any survivors. It's just a, a typical Near East way of saying uh, our lot won. Yay! You know, um, time and time again, you, you see that, and you can see it uh, in microcosm. There's a, a verse in. Um, I think, uh, I do not know which Old Testament book it, book it is, but it was, there's one, in, in the space of one verse, it says practically exactly that, that we you know, completely kind of defeated them and we, we wiped them from the, the face of the, the land and so on, and then we did this with the uh, survivors and so on. So when you take it in the cultural context that those kind of writings come from, it would be to, uh, you know, reading it through sort of our western literary eyes to read that and take it literally uh, as, you, as you might say um, and the indications are that what might to us at first reading look like it's talking about genocide and completely destroying a people by the standards of historical reporting at the time that's not necessarily the case uh, I think. Uh, and then you'd have to go to Copan who's uh, looking at the word studies and so on And some of the the words that we translate as town and city, people attacked this town and destroyed everyone inside it and so on, that actually um, some of the linguistic research is showing that that the words there probably meant uh, something closer to garrison. Uh, So the picture then suddenly shifts. Oh, it it wasn't a civilian population necessarily that was attacked, uh, in in the instance at, at least. Because we've kind of mistranslated the word because we didn't know enough about the linguistic background and so on, we've uncovered more texts since that give us more insight for linguistics, which are perhaps showing a slightly different picture of who exactly it was who was being expanded and so on. Um, Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, that's <laughs> it's an endemic endemic problem with understanding any written text. that words are ambiguous. They're not univocal, as phosphorus to say. And certainly when you're dealing with translation from one language into another, um, translators face huge problems over, do we, tran- do we try and translate on, on a closest word for word into our language, even if we don't have a word that means exactly the same thing? Do we paraphrase to get the same kind of meaning across more accurately, but at the risk of not representing the original uh, text so closely? And you'll see in the introductions of different Bible translations, the translators talking about the particular approach that they've taken in that translation whether they're going closer to word-for-word, or they're going for for meaning-for-meaning translations, and so on. And then it becomes even more difficult when you're translating something not only from a different language, uh, say you might have a problem translating something from French into English, but hey, uh, you know, French culture is not identical to English culture, but it's pretty similar in its Western uh, industrialized civilized culture. You're trying to translate something from a culture a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, in the ancient Near East, um, that becomes more problematic. But uh, there's no way around that problem other than to do your best with the sources of knowledge available to you. Um, and it's not about... Uh, because there, there, are, there are criteria for doing good hermeneutics. You know, there, there are kind of rules to the game, as it were. Principles that can be argued about and laid down and applied to how do we get the best understanding of this text out of this text rather than just reading it in the way that happens to suit us or fit our preconceived ideas uh, because of our backgrounds and preconceptions and, and so on. Uh, you know, There's a whole kind of uh, interpretive hermeneutical industry, and what professional theologians a certain strikes spend a lot of their time doing, trying to help us get a better, closer understanding of what the original text was communicating. Um, you know, It's too extreme to go with the postmodernists and say, you know, you can't communicate truth through text at all. So I, I, I had a great fun time at my first university in Cardiff in a very postmodern English department with English lecturers who wrote textbooks telling us that texts had no inherent meaning to them and that they could mean whatever it meant to you as the author. Um, and uh, you couldn't you know, misinterpret a text and no text was more uh, artistically inherently valuable than another because it only you know, meant what it meant to you and so on and if you didn't interpret those textbooks as making those claims those lecturers got pretty annoyed at you for some unfathomable reason they you know, seemed to think that their textbooks were actually communicating those ideas that they wanted to communicate and I, you know, had a hard time kind of living with that self-contradiction, so I jumped ship into the philosophy department and yeah. um, never looked back. But, so, you yeah, that's too extreme, but I think equally it's too kind of naive uh, to go to the opposite extreme and say that uh, of any text, particularly a text from a different language and a different culture and a different historical period and so on, that. Well, whatever it strikes me as meaning on a first read through, um, well, that must be what it what it means. You know, um, there's a good middle ground between those that we have to kind of live in and, and wrestle with, and you know, fortunately for us, some things are a lot clearer than than other things. Uh, and one of the rules of hermeneutics is that you always interpret the less clear by the more clear. <laughs> uh, and so on. So, you know, there are, there are rules to the game. It's not just a sort of anything game's free-for-all. Um, yeah. Mm. 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 Sure. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, I, I was brought up in a Christian family. Uh, my parents were both Christians um, and tended to go to uh, our local Baptist church. That's my sort of denominational and background and I floated around. And lots of different papers since then. Uh, and my parent grandparents on one side were Christian, on, on the other side, um, sort of uh, New Age. Changed, um, with some interesting tensions within the family, uh, to say the least. Um, so for me, it was not a case of me being, you know, not believing Christianity in any sense, and then sort of coming across it, and then having a sort of conversion to sort of the Uh, uh, like that, uh, that many people, I think, that I meet, many Christians, would like to be able to tell. You get a bit of a complex, life, but if my testimony doesn't involve, you know, I used to be an atheist, I was like Richard Dawkins, and then I had a road to the Damascus experience, and I uh, fell off my tricycle when there was a bright light, and... uh, and, that, we haven't got a proper testimony. I, I think um, you know um, it's great if you've got that kind of testimony, but that's not the only proper kind of testimony. I've met lots of lots of Christians who um, became Christian later on in life, having you know been a non-believer, and will say, oh, "I would so love to have been brought up in it. I would have made so so fewer mistakes in my personal life, and so many things that I, I did with a different worldview and background that I now regret. Now I've got this one, and so on." Um, so, you know, there are there are pluses and minuses on both sides of that issue. But for me, there was never a time when God's existence didn't seem like a real kind of existential reality. It was just kind of there and given. And it was, as I was growing up, a process of coming more and more into my own reflective understanding of what who this God was and what kind of relationship he wanted with me and how that relationship was going to function and so on and constantly saying, uh, you know, do I believe that? And I never got to the point of saying, no, I don't. But it's just as if I to say, I, I, I'm living a life of constantly not rejecting what I've been inculturated into. I may have been inculturated into it, but I'm consciously not rejecting it. Just as much as to say, at some stage, I consciously embraced it. Because for all of us, uh, that decision of faith that I was talking about, it's not just, you know... Oh, one day I made a decision of faith and then that was that, that. sort of limited to that moment of conversion or whatever faith is an ongoing journey as you say. You know, every day, every hour, every minute we have to continue affirming our trust in our yes uh, to God, our yes to Jesus um, so as I, I became more adult I became to understand it more reflected on it more had more experience of relationship with God and so on kept kind of asking me, you know, am I affirming in this? Am I trusting in this? Do I believe this? Yes, yes, yes. I never had a the time of rebelling against it and entering you know, battle, anything like that. Um, but I think it is a, a journey, very much, as you say, uh, of I mean, deepening um, understanding and experience and, and action as well. It comes through all of those different elements of the spirituality. And you can probably tell, you know, by nature, I'm a fairly kind of intellectual kind of person by, by constitution. Both my parents were uh, science teachers uh, in schools. um taught you me know, to play chess at a young age, which I for getting into philosophy and so on. But I think that's, you know, for me and, and the calling that I've ended up, up in, I think that's been. Uh, a blessing. And lots of people will ask, oh, you know, you went to university and you studied philosophy, didn't you find that kind of threatening as a Christian? Didn't you find that hard and and a struggle? Um, well, no, not really. I mean, sure, I had some lecturers who uh, were anti-Christian, who were atheists, who, um, the whole thing was, you know, ludicrous. But interestingly enough to me, you know, the majority of the actual philosophers that we've studied, philosophy for Christians. You know, I I do introductory philosophy at Cardiff. I'm studying John Locke, Christian. Bishop Berkeley, Christian. Rene Descartes, Christian. Um, uh, uh, If they're not Christian, it's like, oh, back to the ancient Greeks, let's study, you know, Aristotle, theist. Plato, at least late Plato, pretty theist. Um, And so on. So all of the kind of stuff that I was studying... I just think was a way to have a deeper understanding of and to worship God with my mind and led me into uh, a ministry where I try and uh, do that and help other people to do that. And that's just as legitimate a way of worshipping God and having a ministry and so on as it is to help people um, engage in an appreciation of God's beauty through um, you know, worship music or art. Or um, your compassion of God through social action, you know we about. I'm glad to see that in your mission, you're talking about having talks, you're talking about doing things for people as well. That you're covering up the, the whole spectrum. And notice that that advice in 1 Peter 3:15, that wasn't you know a specialist advice to. This is for the evangelists in the congregation. It was for everyone. And sure, we'll have different talents. Some of us will. Uh, be drawn more towards one sort of area of the, the three different areas than others and so on but Christ wants to transform the whole of our nature made in his image into being more closely in his image A part of the image of God in us is our rationality and our thinking and our, our, you know, the life of the mind worship God with all of your mind and heart and strength just as much as part of our worshiping God is with our attitudes um, to him to other people, to the world, to the environment, to you know, as, against, uh, as it is to doing things uh, and our relationship to Him. And so, on. so, you know, uh, it's good to try and um, be as grounded a human being as you can, although we all ha- we'll have our own perspectives. You know, as well, you know. So I found, uh, you know, thinking more and actually facing up to some of the hard questions and arguments against believing in God and so on, a uh, sort of encouraging and liberating uh, experience that I'd like to sh- share with people as a way of, of strengthening their uh, trust in Christ. Um, so, yeah, that's that. That some of it, at least. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As you were telling, as you were saying that, a Bible verse sprang to mind. So I will trust that instinct and, and, and point you to the the incident where um, there was a, a incident in the New Testament where a um, tower block—I don't know how tall it was, this block of flats—is that building several stories high at least—collapsed and on some people. So a very similar but smaller incident, um, and some people came to Jesus. And those of you who are a better a biblical verse. Uh, uh, flickers than me will perhaps point us to where the particular incident was, but they came to Jesus and said, "What sins have these people committed that God judges them as life? Well? Uh, this, this must be a punishment from God." Um, Jesus rebuffed their question. He basically gave them to understand that this didn't happen because of their sins. You know, it's just one of those things that happened wasn't a judgment from God, but he then went on to use it as an illustration of the final judgment and to turn back on his questioners and, and remind them that there would be a judgment from God, and unless they were right with God, you know, they'd go the way of all flesh. Kind of um, but it's very interesting. There's a parallel case of a the theological understanding that, that there is a stream of in Old Testament thinking, but I think there's a development through the Bible through to Jesus which gradually expunges that very Old Testament view. Um, but the whole book of Job, for instance, is basically a critique of that view. The whole book of Job, wonderful book about the, the topic of suffering, I and mean, a wonderful literary piece of poetry uh, writing as well. And very current in terms of the, the modern philosophical debate about the problem of evil. And the difference between the logical problem and the evidential problem and so on, really good stuff in there. But the whole tenor of that book is to say that, you know, Job is not suffering because he deserves it as a punishment. It's some of his Job's comforters come and say, No, come on, Job, admit it, you must have done something terrible, you know, because this must be a punishment from God because, you know, if you're nice, God's good to you. And if you're nasty, God's nasty to you. And it's a very kind of simplistic and kind a of black and white kind of way of looking at it, which is why Jesus causes such astonishment, such astonishment when he says says things in the New Testament like how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because if you have this certain, you follow through a certain stream of Old Testament thinking, you know, if you're nice, God blesses you, sort of health and wealth gospel kind of stuff, you just data pick your verses, you think, well, if someone's rich, that must be because God's blessing them. And that must be because they're a really good person. Okay? So, you know, who stands the best chance of getting into in, God's good grace? You know, good people. So, when Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a rich man, you know, harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, that wonderful bit of uh, yeah. sort of uh, ludicrous uh, uh, imagery, um, that's why they're so astonished. Because it's turning on head their assumption that good things happening to you are because God likes you and bad things happening to you are because you're a bad person. And so there's two instances where Jesus says, No, that's you know, that's not quite the way it is. <laughs> that's too simple a view of this thing. Um, I mean one One interesting thing is that, of course, we're talking about an earthquake here, and uh, scientists from here will have to confirm this, but I'm told that the fact that we have plate tectonics that leads to earthquakes, of course, (coughs) is an essential part of the carbon cycle on the planet. And if there wasn't uh, the plate tectonics on the the carbon cycle that's part of, there couldn't be life on the planet. It's one of the uh, conditions of habitability that the earth fulfills that as far as we know nowhere else in the universe that we found yet at least does fulfill um... so it may be the case that you have to kind of pays your money and takes your choice, a planet where you can't live at all or a planet where you can live but where you have to have the occasional Earth um... Hmm. Hmm. So part of that comes back to the discussion we had about morality um, earlier. Because what they're in in a sense saying is, isn't that terrible? Isn't that a bad thing? Isn't that something that God ought not to have allowed or permitted to happen? If if there were a God, he would have failed in his moral duties that he ought, ought to be fulfilling. But of course, on an atheistic worldview, there's no such thing as those more objective duties that live up to or fail to. And if it's true, as the moral argument argues, that the only... that that, that a necessary precondition of there being real objective values in existence is that God exists, and those values are part of his essential nature. God is the good, as Plato might have put it. Then, sure, the existence of evil, or evil things happening, might become a mystery on the view that there's a God, but it's not a self-contradiction, because there being a God is a precondition of there being such a thing as good or evil things, or obligations. Um, the self-contradictory position is the one embraced by the atheist like Richard Dawkins, who say, on the one hand, quote, there is no, no good, no evil, nothing but pitiless indifference. And then On the other hand, religious people are evil, they don't live up to their obligations, how could God allow this terrible tragedy to happen, um, and so on. So that's, I think, a good starting point for that discussion. And the other—I um, mean, I don't have time to go into it—but just to note, the majority of philosophers of religion, whether they're atheists or agnostic or theistic or whatever, agree with the so-called logical problem of religion: the idea that there's a contradiction between God being all good and all knowing and all powerful and there being evil. That there is no logical contradiction there, and the discussion in of religion circles has moved on to an argument that says, "Okay." It's not logically contradictory to say that God exists and that evil exists, but maybe the existence of evil, or the existence of too much evil, or some kind of evil, counts against their being a God. And there, even if you think that there is an argument, sort of inferential argument, that counts against their being a God from the existence of evil, you'd still have to weigh that argument in the balance against all the positive reasons for believing that there's a God. And those might just, you know, overwhelm any reason that you've had um, from an influential argument from these opinions. Um And that's where the debate is now in the religion of generally agreed to be. And that's where the debate is in the Book of Job, in the of Illigion, as well. Um. Oh. Thank you. I certainly would, yes. Okay. Oh, well, that's great. Lord, thank you for uh, all the the guys here tonight, and for this opportunity to uh, worship you with our minds and to grapple with some of the, the mysteries of uh, of existence and of you, and perhaps to come to something of a, a bit more of an understanding of you, a bit more of uh, a grounded confidence in you and your nature and the life that you're offering us in Christ. Thank you Lord for all the people who were up here uh, at the start of the meeting taking on roles in the exec and pray uh, that those of us who are in a position to do so will uh, really support them uh, in their job which is to support all of us in being your ambassadors not to uh, take the job away from us but to help us to do it better uh, to give us opportunities to be ambassadors for you and your kingdom. And just thank you, Lord, for calling us into a life of truth and goodness and your beauty and charging us with sharing that wonderful calling um, with everyone that we meet. So thank you in Jesus' name. I pray that you would bless their efforts in the mission week coming up and help them to really engage with people out of love for you with gentleness and respect. Amen.